Hi everyone, welcome back to our anti-hate conversation series. For our first-time podcast listeners, I'm your host, Mariam, the Anti-Hate Initiative's Project Manager at Council of Agencies Serving South Asians. Before this episode, the Anti-Hate Conversation series was taking place primarily on Facebook Live. You can find all other episodes on facebook.com forward slash C-A-S-S-A online. While this is part 24 of the Anti-Hate Conversation series, the next few episodes we will be focusing on a project CASA is working on with the Anti-Hate Community Leaders Group in an effort to combat online hate. This project is funded by the Department of Canadian Heritage. From now on, the episodes will be available on multiple streaming platforms in addition to Facebook and YouTube. For our first episode on the issue of online hate, we will be discussing a recent national survey conducted by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and advocates data on online hate speech and racism in Canada. Before I introduce our guests for today's episode, I want to acknowledge that while everyone listening might be living on different territories, the work of the Council of Agencies Serving South Asians takes place on the traditional Indigenous territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and most recently the territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit. This territory is part of the Dish with One Spoon Treaty, an agreement between the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. This territory is also covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. And today, Takaranto, the traditional Mohawk name of this area called Toronto, means the place in the water where the trees are standing. This area and its surrounding areas have always been and are still home to Indigenous people. While we organize today, we remind ourselves to respect and nurture our relationship to this land, as well as to its first peoples, both past and present. This land acknowledgement would not be complete unless it serves as a reminder that we must also work to amplify the voices and implement the rights of Indigenous people. Our first guest is Mohammed Hashim. Mohammed Hashim is the Executive Director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, a crown corporation within the Canadian Heritage Portfolio. Mohammed was a longtime labor organizer and continues to be a human rights advocate has dedicated his career to supporting equity, inclusion, and community empowerment. He currently also sits as a board member for the United Way of Greater Toronto. Welcome, Mohammed. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is David Coletto. David Coletto is one of the founding partners and CEO of Abacus Data, one of Canada's leading polling and public opinion research firms. David has more than a decade of experience working in the marketing research industry and is an industry leader in online research methodologies, public affairs research, corporate and organizational reputation studies, and youth research. Thank you, David, for being here. It is my pleasure, Miriam. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you could both join us. Why don't we jump right in and have you both introduce yourselves, your organizations, and your work briefly. So I, maybe I can go first. So my name's Mohammed Hashim, as as you in your introduction said, I work for the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Uh, for me, honestly, my work is just about empowering communities, figuring out who's doing important work, how do we get behind them, how do we support? Uh, because I think we've come to a point uh, in our national consciousness, especially around race relations, that we just want to see action. You know, a lot of talk has been done, a lot of data has been collected, a lot of um, a lot of things have been said about, you know, 
what we should or shouldn't do, but I think what we really need to do is to move forward. And, you know, I'm joining this organization at a time where I think the Canadian public uh, wants to see that. And I think the government wants to see that. My board of directors want to see that. And definitely all the people I work with um, at the CRF want to see that. So for me, you know, I'm, I've been an organizer, a community organizer for many, many, well, for at least two decades now. <laughs> so um, to me, this is like, I get to have a dream job being able to fight for equality in Canada. And, and I'm really privileged to be here. So thank you. Thanks for, for the introduction. Um, I, I'm a market researcher, social researcher. I, uh, I, un, I get to do pretty awesome things in that I get to talk to Canadians every day, asking them questions uh, on a range of things. But the projects that I get the most um, fulfillment out of are the ones like I worked on with Mohammed and, and his team, you know, exploring how people feel about really important issues. And I, and I, I second what Mohammed said. I don't think there's been a moment in our history where more and more people are, are questioning their assumptions, are you know, looking at, at issues through other people's perspectives. And uh, what my, my team at Advocates Data do is, is we're trying to constantly do that ourselves, is try to understand the world through the eyes of, of people who live it, um, whether that's uh, you know, things that aren't as important about why they buy what they buy, all the way to things that matter in terms of how they feel about each other, um, how they might vote, and how they might take action um, to want to see change. And so it's a pretty exciting uh, field to work for me because, you know, the world's changing so fast that at any given moment, um, I learn new things in my job. So uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. So can both of you provide the context for this national survey? Because when I first came across it, um, I feel like it was the first time I was able to see like good data about this issue really concisely presented. Um, so what prompted undertaking the survey and why? Um, so we, we, so there's, there's two reasons. One, uh, for me, it's the, the issue of online hate is a personal one. For me, I've been fighting against hate for many, many years. Um, I, I mean, I remember being in Quebec City, you know, the day after the massacre and, um, and flying out from here to Quebec City and meeting uh, the victims and, you know, seeing bloody carpets and bullet holes um, and telling the stories of people who um, survived uh, that night. And um, so for me, like the impact of online hate has been very real and, and, and visceral. And I remember months, for months after I came back after uh, Quebec City, you know, I would walk into a mosque for, for Friday prayers and I would look for where the pillars were because in my mind, I'd walk into a place that might might see a, you know, a shooter. Um, so to me, it's, it's a personal matter. Um, but also, you know, what happened um, at the Capitol, uh, during the Capitol riots was, was incredibly scary. Um, and I, and I felt that it was like, you know, many lines have been crossed for many, many years, but that seemed just beyond comprehension that I would never have thought that this would happen where they would break into the, the, 
the U.S. Congress and, mm -hmm. you know, try to and basically take it over. And, um, and at that point, I realized, you know, the government's been talking about online hate for a while. And we've been talking to stakeholders from the Jewish community, from the Muslim community, from the anti-hate uh, environment and the anti-hate network and just, and even international experts to see, you know, what's happening. So we thought this would be a good opportunity for us to delve into it and find out where people really are, are at. And, um, and that's when we contacted David. I also think just to, to add a slightly different context, I think, you know, the pandemic didn't create the impetus to do this research, but it did, I think, accelerate um, people's use of social media, right? I, I mean, one of the key findings in this survey is, and we have to keep this in mind, two out of three Canadian adults are daily social media users, right? Th those numbers have gone up over the last year. And so this is not a place, and I put place in quotation marks, where a minority of people are gathering and sharing and learning and you know communicating. This is where most people are. And so the importance of this question, um, given what Mohammed just said about seeing events and being able to say, those have been incited or fueled or informed by what's going on online, um, I think created, which I'm glad that he reached out to us to, to help him with this project, but it, it certainly creates the environment where we need to understand, we need to know how people feel, what are they doing and what do they want Turkey policymakers to do in response. Thank you. Um, I agree. I think I think a lot of the pandemic, as well as the capital riots, um, I think that they, they just kind of compound on each other. And it was just a lot of things happening into and like snowballing into this like effect of like feeling really like helpless and not really knowing like what can be done. Um, so I relate to that personal feeling as well. Um, and in terms of just the admin of the survey, like how many people took part in this survey? Um, what was the makeup of the survey? Who were, who was your demographic? Yeah, I'll take that one, the, the methodology question. Well, we, we did a, quite a large survey. So we interviewed 2000 uh, Canadian residents. We did it in early January or mid-January, January 15th to 18th. And we, we conducted online and I won't go into detail on, on the, the exact way that we do it, but basically we recruit respondents from a number of survey panels that have been recruited um, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of Canadians that have been recruited to these. And we, we randomly recruit uh, from these panels and our goal is to, to build a representative sample of the country. So by gender, by age, by educational attainment, by region, by official language. And in this case, because it was so important, we made sure it was representative as much as we could by racialized group. And so we had really good sample sizes of of all those groups. And so as, as we did in this report, we, out, we broke out, excuse me, responses by, by those different groups. Um, and and we, we, we make sure that this sample looks like the country by comparing what we got with uh, the census and making sure that we adjust. So we, make, we, we wait slightly to make sure it's, it's as close to that, to the population as we can. Thank you for that. Um... And in terms of the summary of the key stats that came to light from the survey, um, what did that look like? What was the summary? Um, what came to light from the survey? Well, Mohammed, do you want to start with what you thought were the key? I mean, no, I, I, want to, I want you to go first. 
All right. Well, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of interesting data in this, in this study, but for me, the, the, the three things that really stood out were, one, um, vast majority of Canadians are concerned about the spread of hate online, right? We're not talking about a slight majority or a big minority. We're talking about 78% who said they are concerned to some extent about the spread of hate speech online. Um, and, and that underscores this call to action. And, and the reason why I think you're seeing both governments, civil society, and, um, and the platforms themselves having to respond to this, right? This is a problem people recognize, which is the first one. Now, more importantly, though, I think to me is just also the extent to which Canadians have either experienced online hate or harassment or have seen it for themselves, right? We're talking about anywhere between half or three, one out of three Canadians who've experienced some form of hate, whether that's offensive name calling, racist comments or content, sexist comments, homophobic comments, you know, and, and while we often get lost in a percentage, right? For example, 7% of Canadians we surveyed said they had experienced racist comments or content online. Now, 7% looks like a small number. But when you extrapolate that to the actual number of people who've experienced it, and let's say there's about 30 million Canadians aged 18 or over, that is a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. who've who said they've experienced it in the last few months. And then the third finding, I think, is, is just, the, as I had mentioned, the broad call to action that 60% that, um, of Canadians said they want the federal government to do more to prevent online hate. Only 17% were opposed and the rest were not sure, which means there's still some folks out there we need to convince. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that, 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 that like, the desire to see the federal government move on this was, uh, was actually honestly a bit surprising to me. I didn't think that there was that big a consensus because when we talk about what um when we talk about like when we talk about you know taking online hate off like off the platforms you get a visceral reaction from people who are you know freedom of speech advocates to say like no i'm sorry you can't you can't do that this place is 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 open it's free anyone can say what they want to and you know my understanding was that you know we as a society kind of look at the uh, as at the online space as the wild west we don't have a sense of what decor is. We don't have an expectation of civility. We just kind of think that it, anything goes and that's fine. And I think, you know, the results of, you know, when we ask, you know, like 80% of people supported social media companies to remove racist or hateful content within 24 hours of it being identified by a trusted third party organization. That tells me that people are just sick and tired of it. They're just like, they're, enough is enough. And um, for me, I, you know, I, when I look at it, I'm like, okay, well, you know, we've, when radio first started, I'm sure we had similar type problems. When TV first started, there were similar type problems. Obviously there's a difference because, because like there's broadcasters that are a business that are using those airwaves and therefore the government can say, or the CRTC or an independent agency can say yes, no to whatever. But you know, as a society, we've come up with PG-13 and R and G, and you know, we've kind of drawn boundaries to say what's acceptable and what's not. And I think that what the survey really told me was that people are expecting those boundaries to be drawn. 
Mm-hmm. Um, what was even, but what was really shocking to me, uh, there's another thing that I found out was when we looked at the 18 to 29 year old uh, age bracket, they experienced all of it, you know, hate, incitement of violence, misogyny, all of it, um, threats to violence, about 20% higher than everybody else does. Maybe because they're online more, but maybe they recognize it more. Um, but that's a pretty big gap, right? For us, it, was, it also made us really think about who are the victims of this. And um, from there, we said, okay, here, when we looked at it, 18 and 29 racialized women. That group was by far the most targeted out of any other group. And it's stuff that we know, obviously. We, like, everybody knows that, that that's what happens. Um, but when we saw the numbers, they were so staggering. We said, well, we should tell their stories. And that's when we uh, launched the blockade campaign with the YWCA. But mm-hmm. talk about that after. Uh, thank you for summarizing those. Um, I think one that was also like interesting to me was that people are people don't really know what to do when they come across online hate, um, and they're kind of like lost about like what their options are. And that's one thing that a lot of people are struggling with. Um, I know this is and this is a very broad question, but how do we tackle that issue of like not knowing what to do when you come across online hate? Because a lot of people, a lot of people are like, oh, I just ignore it, or like I just I report it, but I don't really know what happens after that. So, has was that also a huge issue that came up in the survey that folks don't really know what to do when they come across online hate? Um, go ahead, Dave. You go first. I was just gonna say, I mean, we just did Abacus just did some other work. We were part of, um, I think, Canadian Israel. Um, Jewish Association's uh, Summit Against Hate. And we, so I asked a few other questions because out of the r- research we did with, with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, that was a question that came up is, is people see it, they're experiencing it, they think it's a problem and they think it's getting worse, by the way. I forgot to add that point. But I don't know what they're doing on, in their day-to-day lives. And, and Miriam, your point is, is dead on. Most people, when we ask them, who, when we ask people who have seen this kind of behavior online or content, what do you do? Most say, I ignore it, right? But more important, when we ask them, how confident are you, how confident are you that you know what to do or you know the tools that are at your disposable, most 60% say, I'm not confident. I don't know what to do, right? And to, so to Mohammed's point earlier about this being the wild west of the media world right now, I don't think, in the, and it backs up in the research that we did here that's, that shows it's not a question of freedom of speech that people are concerned about. It's simply they don't know what to do. And so when they don't know what to do, they seek frameworks, they seek regulation, they seek guidance from the government, from those who design and build these, these platforms to help them right? Be better at this. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think we always have to come back to this point. There is a sliver in our society who enjoy or find some perverse reason to find joy in, in, in this kind of behavior. But 99% don't want to see this. They don't want anything to do with this. And so I think it's about giving them the ability um, and the confidence to react. But I think that only takes us so far. 
And, and I think, you know, what, what we learned in the survey as well is that, but to Mohammed's point earlier, you know, people's lack of confidence still needs, I think, input and intervention by government, by regulators. And that's why we see, you know, significant numbers, 80% supporting uh, government requiring social media companies to remove this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what to do. I mean, there's been, like, I have reported pages uh, multiple, multiple times. I've sent emails to like the head of public policy, to people working at Facebook. Um, you know, we're like, I run an anti-racism organization that's a federal crown corporation. You would think that they would take it with a little bit of seriousness, but no, that stuff is still up there. So, I mean, I can't get any resolve from, from them. Um, and I don't think anybody else can either. It's untransparent. It's not, um, it's not accountable. Um, so, I mean, of course people have no idea and have no sense of confidence in it, but I think that that's, that's what we need to build. Now, look, this is a, this is a completely difficult environment to be in because, you know, when we talk about digital safety, um, if we're not just talking about freedom of speech or harm reduction, we're also talking about privacy. Because uh, all three of us, all three of those different different pieces are are in constant flux to it. So, and you know, and there's also the, the issue of jurisdiction. Like Facebook could say, we're turning off Facebook in, in Canada. See you later. And that will be, you know, okay, they've lost 30 million or 20 million users, whatever we are in Canada, but they still have one point, you know, like uh, billions of people across the, uh, the world. Um, so the entire world is, is, is grappling with this. Um, so that, like, that sense of like, well, these people are like, this company is, is just too big to manage is also a real one. But I think that when we talk about what, potential legislation could look like. I really think that when we talk about digital safety as a whole, there needs to be you know, an organization similar to the CRTC that looks at the entire environment, that, that gives clear guidance to social media companies to say, this is what you can and you can't do. This is how you report what you've done on this. And this is how you, this is how, uh, you report back to us. This is the frequency by which you do it. Um, and that gives you the, the, the ability to be, you know, active here in Canada. Um, on the other end, you know, we, as we start thinking about this, the space, I think it's going to take a long time to figure out what's acceptable and what's not acceptable because, um, it's not, it's not clear cut. Like is something hateful? Is it not like, is this, you know, digital safety, whatever it might become. Um, like, is there a recourse for people to be able to say, well, actually I disagree with you. This is not hateful. Um, there's, 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 it's, it's really messy out there. And then also what happens with that? Like when things are taken down, um, we want hate, like hate speech to be prosecuted, but like, like do, do the police have access to all that information? Do they not have access to that information? These are really big questions that we don't have the answers to. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we start going down this road of, of where we're going to, to deal with online hate, all these questions will come up. And we, and in my opinion, honestly, I think there's a lot of people that want to do it really quickly because the, the pain is, is so high uh, and I get it um, to, to some degree, obviously I don't get it to the full degree. Um, but my recommendation is to actually take it slow because um, there's a lot of negotiate. There's a lot of, at stake, and there's a lot to negotiate on. Yeah, I, I think I was. I just got. Um, I just saw on Facebook that they finally removed like vaccine misinformation pages, and it was like a lot of people were like, "Okay, but the harm's already been done. Like the information was yeah, been out there. <laughs> the information was it has been out there for so long. Like." what is the point of taking it down now but um but that's the that's the thing right it's very messy it's it's hard to like decipher what is hate because there's all these issues of like oh i just i was just joking it was actually just done in satire so it's not it wasn't i wasn't actually like spreading hate content so there's definitely a lot of um a lot of gray area there um so i mean just to go off that for a second like one of our board members emily nicola who was a huge anti-racist and activist did actually put out a bunch of comments that were sarcastic and Twitter took her down and locked her profile for two weeks. This lady's a journalist and they locked her, like locked her, uh, a thing down. So, I mean, I don't trust, I don't, I have not like the algorithms that they've created right now don't work. They're not fair. So I want things to be taken down that could potentially be harmful, especially incitement to violence, anything that has real life threats to it, get it taken down. You know, let's deal with this like if the threat levels appropriately, but mm-hmm. also, but the stuff that is a bit more nuanced, um, there ne- it needs to be taken down for sure. But like, let's make sure that there's a proper recourse for people to say, "I'm sorry, you were wrong," uh, and that I want it to be put back up, because I've, if we don't have both, where things are just taken down and censored across the board, we'll lose confidence in the ability to have an honest conversation online as a society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that, that's funny to me that they were so quick to take, take down her like tweets. They didn't do that with um, Trump, but you know, um, but of course when there's like other people, um, that's interesting though. Um, and in terms of um, this specific survey being used to inform public policy um, moving forward, um, what what is what are what is the conclusion to this survey? Like, what are we hoping to see from this survey? in terms of informing um, public policy? Uh, we wanna see legislation. Um, we wanna see legislation soon. Um, and I feel confident that it's coming. I, I mean, like, as I said before, it's, it's super complicated. I know there's at least four federal ministers involved in the conversation. I think it's heritage, justice, treasury as well as uh, public safety. Um, so there's, it's a very, it's a full conversation. And I think everybody in, inside the federal government is looking at this with uh, just, just trying to make sure that they get it right um, because this has massive implications on everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, David, what about you? No, I think, I think- you know the impact of of the survey itself was was seen you know days after you released it and and you had the minister 
and the prime minister, you know, sharing the results. And, and that, that to me demonstrates um, that they intend to do something. Um, they want to do something. And, and I think it just confirms what, what Mohammed was saying, but, but I'll just, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stress the importance of, of getting it right. Because on the one hand, there's overwhelming support for government action. There's, there's overwhelming recognition this is a problem, but we are dealing with, you know, government telling people they can't say certain things. And in any world, whether it's things we absolutely should never say or things that are on the, on the edge, uh, people will get uncomfortable if it feels they don't have control and aren't, aren't being careful. And so being careful really matters in this case. It usually matters for public policy. But mm -hmm. in the case where, you know, this is going to allow, you know, opponents of this, if it's not done carefully, to say this is government censoring people. Mm -hmm. and, and so they, I think, have to uh, really be, be mindful of that. And I think they are. And I, and I don't think anyone's taking this lightly as, as the challenge they face in, in dealing with this problem. Thank you both. Um, are there any other final comments either of you would like to make before we wrap up the session? I'm just going to promote the partnership that we have with the YWCA called Block Hate. Um, there, which highlights the experiences of uh, young women who have dealt with online hate. There was one video that was done uh, of a young lady named Noor Fadl uh, from Vancouver. And uh, we have another video coming out in about two weeks uh, of a woman named Carla Beauvau, um, who talks about her experiences with online hate in Montreal. Uh, so if you see that, please share it because I think what we, we cannot lose in this conversation because you know there's freedom of speech, there's privacy, there's getting it right, there's all of that is we can't lose the perspective of those who are harmed the most. Um, so we're gonna make sure that we amplify their voices. So if you see anything on the blockade campaign, share it. Uh, and the YWCA is running a, a petition on it. Uh, we are not running a petition. The YWCA is running a petition on it. Um, so I would encourage you to look at the YWCA's uh, website uh, to find out more about that information as well. And that's just, I'll just reiterate, that's such an important point because the survey can only take us so far, right? We need to hear the, the actual stories of people who've been harmed because of this kind of behavior to add, you know, from a public policy advocacy perspective, emotion's a big part of it. And no survey is gonna demonstrate the emotion that this hate creates, the negative emotion, right? And so uh, I think that work, Mohammed, that you're doing with the YC, uh, why WCA is, is just so important because it gives, it's putting a face to the data that we've collected here and, and telling people that while there's millions of Canadians who've experienced it, here's a few stories that give it, um, I think a really important um, lens. So, you know, great work on that. Thank I you. agree. I think uh, personal anecdotes definitely make a difference. Uh, it definitely removes the the cold stoicness of a survey that a survey might have, it adds uh, it adds a person it adds a person to it, which is the reality of, of these issues. Um, thank you again, both of you, for joining us today, uh, and hopefully something can be done about it. Uh, thank you again. Take Thanks. Care. Thanks for having me.
Thank you again for tuning in for this episode of the Anti-Hate Conversation Series. Join us again in two weeks as we continue to explore the issue of online hate and how we can begin to combat it. Thank <laughs> you.